I love the logic that Alan and I worked into, which is, you know, he goes he goes to the gas station to get his overalls. He goes to the uh, the pharmacy to get his mask. You, you know, he throws he throws Bucky into the uh, electrical grid to shut down the power. He uh, burns up the phone lines to to cut the town off. You know, everything is for a reason. So they're not random kills. The kills are all kind of with a kind of with a point, and um, and then also the way Donald Pleasance teams up with Bo Starr, the local sheriff. I I was I was definitely in my mind. I thought I was shooting kind of a cop film. Welcome to episode two of season two of Spill Your Guts. I'm your host, Kevin Lee. Odd as it may seem today, there was a time when sequels were considered inferior ripoffs by studios and critics alike. A desperate ploy at milking the success of a likely superior original film. Rarely was a sequel directed by the film's original director. Of course, there are many notable exceptions, such as Evil Dead 2, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, and Dawn of the Dead. With the filmmakers having concern that there wasn't artistic value in returning to the well, or that the studio executives would see them as one-and-done type creatives. And yet that didn't stop many of the genre's most successful franchises from soldiering on. Jason, Freddy, Chucky, Pinhead, to name a few, all continued on with involvement from their creators at some level. One of the most resilient has been the Halloween franchise. The first sequel was written and produced by the creators of the original film, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, and directed by relative newcomer Rick Rosenthal. The film also saw the return of stars Jamie Lee Curtis and Donald Pleasance, and continued directly from where the first film had left off as Michael Myers continued his night of terror. The film was a success, and Carpenter and Hill were asked to come up with a third. So, having seemingly killed off both Myers and Loomis in the previous film, they decided to try something different and create a completely new story with new characters set on Halloween. The idea being that if this model worked, you'd have a formula for an anthology horror film you could release every couple of years. It didn't. The fans were puzzled and pissed at the absence of beloved villain Michael Myers, and the movie soon became persona non grata with fans. That would change over the years as the film titled Halloween 3 Season of the Witch and well-directed by Carpenter pal Tommy Lee Wallace and starring genre greats Tom Atkins and Daniel Harrelly would go on to become a fan favorite. Long live Silver Shamrock. A few years later, undeterred executive producer of the series Mustafa Akkad felt that it was time to bring Michael back. Carpenter and Hill had moved on and stepped away from the series. Who was going to bring the shape out for another terror-filled night of trick-or-treating? Enter Dwight Little. Having directed three action-adventure films prior to signing on to do Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers, Little didn't necessarily seem like the obvious choice. However, one thing anyone could see by looking at his first three films was a strong eye for big set pieces and a deft way with suspense. Halloween 4 also sees the return of Donald Pleasance as Dr. Loomis, and Little and writer Alan B. McElroy give this genre legend more to do here than in previous films. It's a smart move, and Pleasance gives a knockout performance. 
Halloween 4 has a strong cast all around, with Danielle Harris beginning her career as a screen queen, playing the seven-year-old Jamie Lloyd. Ellie Cornell is in a relatable and strong protector role, an underrated contribution in many ways in this film, as Rachel Carruthers, Jamie's stepsister. And a great supporting cast, including both stars as Sheriff Ben Meeker and veteran character actor Michael Pataki as Dr. Hoffman. Dwight Little found just the right balance of the controlled and deliberate tone of Carpenter's original film and his own sensibilities as a filmmaker. Cutting down on the gore of Halloween 2, which really was there as a response to the popularity of the Friday 13th films, and doesn't quite fit in with the original Halloween films, and playing up the tension, Halloween 4 also captures the spirit of Halloween itself. The opening montage of fall imagery rooting the film firmly in the season in a way that few of the many oncoming sequels would recapture. Halloween 4 is not only the best of the Halloween sequels, it's a testament to Dwight Little's skill as a filmmaker that the film has become a traditional selection in many genre fans' seasonal film playlist. Dwight has gone on to direct plenty more films and television series in the genre, including the vastly underrated 1989 version of Fan of the Opera, starring Robert England. No points for guessing which role he plays. The extremely fun and well-directed Anaconda's The Hunt for the Blood Orchid. The X-Files, the brilliant Millennium for which he did one of the best episodes, a Christmas episode featuring Darren McGavin as the father of Frank Black, series lead Lance Henriksen, and From Dust Till Dawn this series. All of this on top of an extremely successful career as an action film director, of which he has made many greats. Dwight and I talk on the hijinks of shooting a crazy movie like his early action-adventure film Bloodstone, why he approached Halloween 4 as though it were a detective movie, working with the late legend Donald Pleasance, getting around Andrew Lloyd Webber while making his version of Phantom, and his new horror film Natty Knox, which has him reuniting with both Danielle Harris and Robert England. In 1988, he changed the face of Halloween. Tonight, He's back. Spill Your Guts is proud to present a conversation with director Dwight Little. Hey, Dwight. Kevin, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. Oh, thank you so much for... I have to tell you, this is a real treat for me. I, you, I we did an episode of the show on Halloween Four on the on the oh film, my God. Um, and uh, uh, I, I hope you haven't heard it because it was me gushing about how it's my favorite of the sequels and how brilliant a director you are. So I'm I'm very excited to have you here. Well, thank God I didn't hear that. <laughs> yeah, then you'd be like, oh no, some weirdo. <laughs> I'd be ru- I'd be ruined. Yeah. <laughs> Let's dive right in here because I've got lots to talk to you about, and uh, and and you're you've done so many great things that I'm excited to hear the inside scoop on. So I wanted to kind of start by asking a little bit about sort of uh, from a a, a a kind of a, a perspective of when you were a young man or or boy, even for some people, when you first kind of discovered that that cinema was you know a passion of yours. It was early, Kevin. I'm one of those really early birds. Um, I got, uh, as a Christmas gift, I got a, a Super 8 Kodak, you know, Instamatic Super 8 camera for Christmas. And um, so I started making little shorts, you know, it's kind of a not unusual story with my brother, you know, and outside the house. And I learned how to splice and to edit. And you you take the film into the pharmacy or whatever it's called now. I used to call it drugstores. <laughs> <Not now. laughs> and 
you know, you get your film back a few days later, and it was the most exciting part of the week is to get your film back that was developed. So um, I, I started making shorts uh, through high school, all, all in Super 8, um, cut them myself, later learned how to add a little sound to it. And then I won two awards. One was with the Cleveland Plain Dealers Student Film Festival. And the other one was with the Ohio Arts Council. Um, and then I applied to a million film schools and didn't get into any of them. And I was pretty discouraged. And then at the really like the 11th hour at the last minute, I got a, um, a an admission to USC on a, there was a, some caveat to it, like, you're kind of admitted is what it was. So <laughs> semi admittance. Yeah. What? Yeah. Semi admittance. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I, I jumped at that chance. And I think it was kind of uh, those student film awards helped at getting in. It wasn't quite the the um the rush uh, then that it is now to film school. People weren't doing it. It was it was not that common. In my high school class, which wasn't big, but in a hundred or so people in my high school class, you know, no one was going to film school. It just, you know, there was dentistry and marketing and business and medicine. People, it wasn't a thing. You know, now it's it's just so many people go to film school. So I was lucky to get in. And, and uh, the, the answer to your question is I, I picked up the camera earlier and got hooked kind of early. And were you a fan of sort of, you know, of course, in the 70s was the, the, the great era of the auteurs, you know, uh, something that feels so long ago now because it's yeah. very far from that time. And well, not we were awash a in great movies. That yeah. was the thing. And there was no real competition anywhere. I mean, what you would see on TV, maybe at 11 o'clock, they'd play an old movie in syndication. Um, there was, of course made for tv movies the networks would make them you know commonly with the sunday night movie or whatever but there there was no secondary market you didn't see it on vhs or dvd or streaming or it was like either you went and saw it in the theater or you kind of didn't see it that it, right. it wasn't a very different landscape that being said i mean you know we know who those list of great filmmakers are in the 70s but it was an amazing time to have your eyes open to movies. Well, it's funny. I had a slightly more mainstream um, taste. I would have to say at that time, I was, I was, I was very interested in Sidney Pollack because he was making these very these these they were clearly Hollywood movies, but they were all interesting Hollywood movies. You know, it was the Three Days of the Condor and. Jeremiah Johnson and the the racing one that he did. And so he was like, wow, this guy's making movies that sell tickets. But then on top of that, of course, you know, the, the usual suspects, you know, Friedkin and Coppola, not so much Spielberg. Um, I liked Close Encounters. I thought that was interesting. I never was on the Spielberg train. It was just too fanciful for me. And um, I loved political things. I loved all the president's men and the parallax view and um, what those kind of news, you know, newspaper stories. I, I was network very interested. Stuff. Oh, network to me. Sidney Lumet, 
yeah. you know, Ser Serpico forever, you know. So mm -hmm. that was my taste, I think. I I wasn't interested in Star Wars. I wasn't interested in um, fantasy. I know this Indiana is very... Eh, they played that at USC, and everybody thought it was the greatest thing. This is where I'm a real outlier, because I... I, I, I you know, they played in. They played the first Raiders at school, and we saw it at school, and everybody was raving about it. And I thought, you know, it's a cartoon for kids. That was my honest reaction. It's fun. It's fine. It's giant rocks and snakes, and it's got funny quips. Um, but it didn't. It didn't get me thinking. You know, it didn't make me consider. It, it wasn't like watching Last Tango in Paris or a Bertolucci right. movie. It wasn't like watching the 400 blows or something would, you know, twist your head around. It was just, it was, it was entertainment. Um, but I, I never got on board with Spielberg until, you know, Munich and Private Ryan. Okay. And, yeah. you know, and then I was like, holy shit. You know, Schindler's List, obviously. You know, this is why this guy is so freaking yeah. good, you know. Yeah. Because you see him connected with material that's more adult, right? Um, as like some of the Tom Hanks stuff, and then it's like, wow! I'm sorry, sorry, Stephen, I miss I misjudged you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny because I, I, you know, I I can so relate to what you're talking. When I was quite young, like ten, eleven, something like that, I got on this big kick of watching. Um, uh, what's the filmmaker's name? He did um, uh, the, the the Brando one. Oh my God, where's my brain right now? The one uh, on the waterfront. On the waterfront. Oh, okay, Kazan. Yeah, Ilya Kazan. I got on this like yeah. Ilya Kazan kick when I was like twelve. And right. Oh wow, so you were I'm, you were precocious. Bizarre, really. I mean, I and I remember going to school, and and raving about on the waterfront because I just thought it was the most amazing thing I had ever seen. And Brando in that movie, to this day, I think Brando's performance in On the Waterfront is something really special. But um, I remember telling my friends about it, and they were just looking at me like, "Who the hell are any of these people you're talking about? Yeah, like, what are you even talking about? Yeah, you I know." know. It was, it was, I, I, well, I thought George Lucas's best movie, and still is his best movie, is American Graffiti. I think it's better than anything he's done since. And um, it just showed what a real filmmaker that guy was. I loved a and, THX 1138 when I saw that film. I yeah, so you had to be a cinephile to appreciate that. But, um, yeah. um, you know, Carpenter, Carpenter was interesting for a minute, and then just when he kind of, I don't know, he had those three movies. There was Halloween, there was The Fog, um, and Escape from New York. You know, he had three yeah. terrific movies. And then a lot of the later stuff didn't land. I love So I don't, anyway, the, huh? Then the thing. But anyway, yeah. the point was, I was just always a little more drawn to, I would say, reality-based movie making rather than movies as fantasy and right. we now live in a world where fantasy is all there is you know we're in a yeah. dc mar we're in a dc marvel world and 
have been for 20, what, 22, 23 years, ever since the first Spider-Man, Spider -Man. really. Yeah. So, so we're just guests in, in the Comic-Con world. Um, but that's okay. I mean, I think everybody should love movies for whatever reason they love movies. I just have no affinity for Guardians of the Galaxy. I could care less. It doesn't interest me. Isn't that weird? I know this is heretical to say it, but I just don't care. <laughs> well, I have to, uh, I've talked about this on the show to my detriment because there are, uh, the social media world isn't, doesn't like me saying it, but I don't have any affinity for those particular films either. I think actually what kind of annoys me about them is that I think that they've tied up some wonderfully talented people um, from doing better things. <laughs> like well, they I'd just, rather they, see a great actor like Chris Evans playing dramas than, than playing Captain America. Um, well, the minute they get a talented filmmaker, um, you know, they snap them up and, and, and put them in the Thor factory or whatever. And I mean, listen, God bless them. I'd love to have that money in that position. Oh, God, but yeah. but it, it does take them away from pursuing their career as, as, uh, as a filmmaker. filmmaker. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's it's funny too because it's it, you know it's also it's so far from that you know we were talking about sort of that auteur era of filmmaking you know those movies are the opposite it's sort of the Marvel Disney Star Wars you know those movies are made by committee they're not they're not made by well, the, the, in any way well it's more akin it's much closer to television I think um, I I did uh, I may have mentioned to you uh, have a book coming out in May called Still Rolling. And what's interesting about the book is it, um, apropos of this conversation, is it talks about the difference between the job of the film director and the job of the television director, which are two completely different jobs. And no one's written largely about it. And the Marvel DC, that kind of movie, with a few exceptions like a Nolan or somebody like that, are committee movies where the writers, the producers, the visual effects people, they're all really co-directing the movie as a committee, yeah. which is very close to the experience in television because it's the showrunner and it's the writers and the, the series lead and everybody kind of has their hand in it. Right. So um, I think, um, like you said, when, when, you know, when Coppola or Scorsese or Freakin walked onto a set, there was one person in charge, period, right? Everybody else, including the studio executives, or if it was Peckinpah, maybe, or, you know, someone in that era, you, you didn't mess with Sam Peckinpah. It was his movie. Yeah. Walter Hill talks about this in the new Quentin Tarantino book, which is great, by the way. Um, and, you know, Walter Hill was saying, he's talking about the getaways. It was Sam's movie, you know. Um, it wasn't Walter Hill, the writer's movie. It was Sam's movie. And yeah. that has changed. That has really, really changed. Except maybe people like you mentioned, uh, Gus Van Sant, who may still have, you know, an, uh, if the budget's low enough, may, may have the creative control. Yeah, guys like David Lynch, I think, still are, you know, at this point, they, they're left alone because of what Yeah, but they make a movie every eight years or something. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's I mean, what was the last what was the last David Lynch movie? I don't even 
I'm not even well, he sure. did. He went to television. He he did Twin Peaks. Went back. But to that Twin was Peaks. that was a generation ago. Twin Peaks wasn't it? Well, the, he re, he he revisited it for Showtime right. about four years ago. That's right. Um, That's right. And uh, it was great. Of course, I'm a big Lynch fan. I love his singular vision. I love that about him. Sure. Um, but uh, you know, it's interesting to me to kind of see how that dynamic is shifting now, and that. TV is starting to become where more of the creatives are going to get to make the things they want and moving away. Well, from they that. have to. They have yeah. to. It's the only place they can work. Um, by the way, speaking of David Lynch, his a cameo at the end of The Fablemans is absolutely masterful. I don't know if you've seen it. I haven't that. seen it yet. I'm really excited he, to see he it. Plays, he plays John Ford at the end of The Fablemans. Which is perfect casting. He's, he's, he's the reason to, I mean, look, it's a very good movie. But he's actually the reason to see the movie is for David. Whoever Lynch. came up with that idea for casting him in that part, stroke of genius, yeah. truly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, I mean, it's perfect. Um, keeping kind of in tone with with the, the yeah. genre nature of this show, I'm curious what the first movie is you remember seeing that scared you silly. The Exorcist, the original. The Exorcist. I mean, I just couldn't sleep. I couldn't. See straight. Uh, I had uh, nightmares. I must have been, I don't know, in my middle. I mean, in the fifteen age, you know, impressionable. Oh boy, yeah. Um, uh, absolutely uh, terrified me, and um, still does. Freaks me out. That <laughs> I don't know, you know why. What's so funny, Dwight is. I ask every guest I have on this show, and I've interviewed 50-something people for this podcast, all filmmakers and mm. all, or actors or whatever, but all people who work in genre film. And I, I always ask that question, and I would say 75% of the time, the answer I get is The Exorcist. Well, and it was just because we all saw it in the theater, for one. Yeah. And we were all of an and when I say we, I mean people that are maybe a little older, but we were all of an impressionable age. And it's just like unlike anything you'd seen before. Yeah. And and the, it was like she was possessed by the devil, period. It wasn't visual yeah. effects. It wasn't yeah. it was it wasn't cool angles or cool lighting. It was just it just was happening. It was terrifying. It's amazing too when you watch that film as an adult, because like yourself, I saw it as a, as a kid, and I was lucky enough to see it in the theater. I saw it in an old rundown kind of, um, you know, one of those kind of old theaters that that had the balconies, and you know, and they would they would show, you know, you could pay five bucks and go see, you know, a, a print of an, an old print of a of an older film, and so I saw The Exorcist in the theater, and I remember being completely out of my mind, uncomfortable and uneasy and terrified. And not just when she becomes possessed, when they're doing things like all the medical procedures they perform on her and she's getting a spinal tap and all these things are happening to oh this girl. God. It's just so, you know, and I, I think one of the things that people might not understand about The Exorcist unless they study that film a bit is how much Ellen Burstyn brings to that to that movie because that performance to me grounds she's so real in that role oh when you think of all the cat i mean max Rosito yeah. and 
Linda Blair and, and Jason the, Miller and the, yeah. the, the, Jason Miller, the level of the, the craft of directing by Friedkin. It's just, and the book, the, the Blatty book, it's just all there. I actually cool. was yeah. also very impressed. I mean, I liked Halloween, don't get me wrong. I liked Halloween, but I was kind of a closet fan of The Fog for some reason. I love that The was, Fog. Yeah. That was really, uh, in, I don't know if I was terrified by it, but I just loved the movie. First of all, I think I had a crush on Adrian Barbeau, so that was part of it. <laughs> I did, we had her on the show. I won't tell her. I'll tell her to check this out. She'll she'll love hearing that. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, she was she was a crush for everybody, and she was very good too. There's something beautiful and talented, yeah, and talented, yeah. and that town and that radio and. Well, it's and, funny. Uh, I, I I shot a film with Dean Cundey, and, and we became friends after we did that. Film oh wow. Together. Yeah, and uh, so I pick Dean's brain a lot on The Fog because I just find The Fog has this wonderful haunting atmosphere just permeating it's through the fun. whole movie. And, they have John uh, Houseman telling the ghost story. Yeah, perfect. perfect. They have Hal, Hal Holbrook. So it's, great. It's, <laughs> I mean, the effects aren't so hot. They don't hold up very well. The, you know the, the effects are a little and, and cheap. they're minimal too there's not a lot really when you think about the fog there isn't a lot of effects work most of it is just not, suspense right. and atmosphere it's, um, the, it's the i swear it's the atmosphere and the actors are wonderful and the score john's score is perfect in that movie he's, it's he's, so minimal and creepy he's and, great look yeah. he created his own franchise when he did that music for halloween one i mean oh yeah it, it's it, it's a, such a incredible so signature and and uh, anyway so yeah so I I started to get into the horror I loved cop movies too speaking of genre you know I was definitely into the French Connection and Serpico and a lot of the you know the Seven Ups and the Roy Scheider stuff and Gene Hackman I just watched cop. Cruising for the first time the other day the free no I've movie. never yeah. seen it I've always had yeah. a little bit of a a faint stomach for that, but is it good? <laughs> yeah, it is good. I mean, I think what's interesting about it by today's standards is how, you know, at the time when freaking made the movie, I know like Roger Ebert, um, who I adore and, and I, I was fortunate enough to, to get to hang out with Ebert before he passed away and get to know him a bit. And he's, he's such an incredible encyclopedia. I sat behind him. him at the Toronto Film Festival. I never met him. I said, yeah, that's where him. I met him was yeah. at the Toronto Film Festival. Yeah, he always attended, and um, but he was a really nice man, and and we, we chatted about movies, and we mostly talked about Donald Pleasance. Actually, is the funny thing, um, but uh, he when he saw Cruising, his criticism of it was that freaking made no comment on the subject matter that he was just presenting it, and then right. as a filmmaker you know it's your responsibility to have something to say about your subject matter yeah is it though yeah and that's what freaking's argument was he said he was like i wasn't trying to say that any community was doing anything right or wrong i was just presenting a, something that was really going on at that time in new york there what that community existed that was what it looked like that was what was right. happening and I, I i liked the idea of a cop having to deal with his own um you know, prejudice having to be thrust into a real situation to, to do his job and sort of confronting the audience with that. But he said, but, but I think by today's standards, 
when you look at it and you realize that yes that's really you know that that kind of snm kind of dominance in the gay community that was happening in the bars and you know all it was very underground and it was a real thing and 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 the truth of the matter was is that community didn't have a, a choice really they, there was so much trouble going on in that community with you know crimes that the police wouldn't investigate because the victim was a gay person and just and freaking because he's such a brave filmmaker tackled that at a time where there was i mean i don't know if you know this but there were so many people that were interested in getting involved in that project and all of them chickened out because of the subject matter because there was so much well i like i like film as a rorschach test where where you put it up there and let people bring their own uh, prism of view to it i i kind of side with freaking on this it's like he he presented a reality as he felt was true and uh without having to i like that about political films too like if yeah. you just show like show me life on the border don't tell me how to feel politically about immigration you know just have whatever but just show me what it's actually like and i'll yeah i'll have i'll have my own um i'll have my own opinion about it well i think sometimes right. you know I, I don't know if you agree but i think sometimes you know a filmmaker's job sure is to make a film and have something to say with the film. But I think sometimes the job of a filmmaker is to provide a lens for the audience into something that they aren't, haven't been exposed to or don't know about. And also the minute minute people know the bias of the filmmaker, then you have a film that by definite, you start preaching to the choir, right? That's right. It's It's like everybody who went, who bought a ticket to see, she said, which not very many people did, but they already agreed with whatever those filmmakers were saying, right? Right. So, so they're, they're not get, attracting anybody outside of the bubble. And this is my big beef with Hollywood with movies. It doesn't matter if you get a standing ovation um, at a theater in West LA. It doesn't matter because those that audience already agrees with you. Yeah. The, the, the trick is, can you? reach out to people and, and get uh, a different conversation going. Um, yeah. And, and I, and I just think people, they marginalize themselves because they lead with their opinion. And yeah, and I, I totally agree. It's so, I mean, I remember, you know, this is years ago now, but the year uh, the Academy Awards won Brokeback Mountain and Crash were both up for best picture. And I remember when, Ang Lee's movie came out when Brokeback came out. Everybody was talking about it, and not just because it was like, oh, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal and Heath Ledger are, are playing, you know, a romantic couple. It wasn't that. It was that it. I think it was the first time a mainstream Hollywood kind of movie, well, as mainstream as far as 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 a, a film about gay characters went, right. that audiences were watching it and and were able to get for certain people able to put down their homophobic reaction that they might otherwise have had and 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 see it for the love story that it was and then on the other hand you had crash was to me a very heavy-handed movie that just was like racism is bad don't be racist like and you know then the oscars comes along and crash wins best picture and the fucking guy who made it is going that other movie should have got it and you know that the only reason was because the Academy was like, we're not going to give the best picture to a, a, a gay cowboy movie. I mean, you know, it's, it's, but just, then, it's but, then that, 
that leads into my my uh, least favorite snub, which is when when Mickey Rourke was passed over for Best Actor for The Wrestler, and they gave it to Sean Penn for playing Harvey Milk. Which, which, uh, first of all, it's not nearly the the movie or the performance, but I thought that was like a, just a handout to the gay community, and I thought that well, that's a political win. I hate political wins. Well, I that's love, all the I, Academy Awards are anymore. I think. Well, now it is. Now it is. It's, yeah. it's just yeah, and it diminishes the value of the award, of course, because you're you're you, if you if you're graded on the curve, then it doesn't have the same value. Right. Yeah, and the I mean, funny thing about giving the award to Sean Penn for that performance was that for people in the gay community, they were all like, "Couldn't you guys have found a gay actor to play Harvey Milk?" <laughs> well, the same is true. Same is true. Brokeback Mountain. There's two straight guys. Yeah, yeah. I think. I mean, I think that's changing now, and I think people have have had that conversation, and it's good. I mean, it, there is, but to me, like you know, I think that's a complicated thing as a director. I don't know how you feel about this, but as a director, like when I'm auditioning actors, I don't ask them about their sex life. I don't, it's none of my business. Oh, God, Whether they're no. gay or straight or whatever. I don't no, best, involve best myself actor. in that. Just best actor is all that matters. But I, um, yeah. but ask me genre questions. I'm afraid we're, <laughs> we're going to miss your audience. <laughs> um, well, yeah, let's, so, your first film was a, sort of an action-adventure film, right, called Getting Even, which you did in 86. And I was reading a little bit about it, and, and you were talking about how it was kind of a vanity project for the producers. At right. The, um, I'm curious, you know, for your first feature, to be in a project that was sort of some guy's vanity project, like, was that sort of disheartening for you? What was that experience? Well, it's actually, was actually my second film, technically. Okay. I did one with Sally Kellerman earlier called KGB, The Secret War, um, which is much more interesting in a certain way because it was a Sandy Howard picture. And Sandy Howard was a great B-movie empresario like a, like a Sam Markoff and had made a bunch of B-movies. But getting even, um, yeah, these guys came to town and they had money but mostly they had all these toys. They had planes and buildings and ranches because they were part of the hunt, the hunt, uh, I guess it was a silver fortune, gas and oil. I mean, they were just loaded. But their idea was they wanted to use all their toys in a movie. So the movie was for, kind of built around how do we use their helicopters and Learjets and gliders? Right. Yeah. How do we use... How do we use the ranch? They literally owned a building in Dallas called Thanksgiving Tower. How do we use that? And um, so, I mean, it was a little annoying, but it was also oddly fantastic because it was a tiny little budget, but it looks huge. You had all those toys, yeah. Because we had access to this whole world and we got Joe Don Baker to be in it and that was fun. Um, uh, the whole... The whole movie works a little better than it should, but at, at that time, there really was no... VHS was just coming on, so it caught a little fire in VHS, but there was no theatrical play for a movie like that. And um, so it didn't do me a lot of good professionally. It's fun to make, It's though. kind of disappeared, hasn't it? Like, is it on Blu-ray or anything at this point? It never... Listen, that movie never even got a DVD release. Okay. It, 
So it is like, if you can't find it on VHS and it doesn't, it's not in the cycle. Most of my movies are in heavy cable rotation, <clears throat> but that one and KGB just don't exist. They're just, they're vanished into the winds of time, I'm afraid. Which brings us to one of your wackier movies, Bloodstone, which you did in 88. Um, I had never seen Bloodstone until I watched it to prepare for our chat today. And did you watch it? it? Oh my I did God. watch it. I did watch it. Uh, the, the, uh, who was it? Arrow? The, the fine folks at Arrow who you know beautifully restored it and it looks great. Not the transfers lovely. What a wacky movie. <laughs> well, this this producer was a wildly wacky guy named Nico Mastarakis. And it was the same thing. It was like he had these these uh, uh, rupees uh, frozen in India that he had access to. And he was trying to make a movie to back into some money he'd found. And so it was like, okay, he wanted to basically do Romancing the Stone, a knockoff of Romancing the Stone. And they had an Indian actor named Rajnikanth, who even then was had a little bit of a of a following. Now he's he he became like an international superstar. Um he played and he's, taxi he's my he was my favorite thing about the film. Oh yeah, he's he's fantastic. It was we didn't we didn't even shoot SAG, so we we didn't have access even to SAG actors, and um, so the whole thing is a bit of a is a bit of a mess. But um, I definitely needed to go to work. You know, I was broke, and this was an opportunity. And um, Nico was a character. He's not a bad guy, uh, but he's you know he's got his own point of view about things, which I never agreed with. Um, we did our best to work together. Well, I mean, he's he has a fairly prolific genre career in his own right. I mean, he oh, he, he does. He's directed yeah. countless movies, and he's a nice man, by the way. He just you know, we we just I don't know, we just had a different um, sensibility. I guess. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was it, it's funny too because you know you were talking in this conversation about not being a big fan of movies like Raiders and stuff, and this whole movie is very much sort of that cliffhanger oh, yeah. serial style of thing <laughs> there's some funny things in it there's some terrible scenes in it but there's some funny scenes in it i have a i have a question the the lead actress is she dubbed they all they all are okay because well, i was watching the her performance and her deliveries are so weird to me i was like weird. I mean, she's not she's not i don't want to be an asshole but she's not the strongest actor and, and right. well she i'm trying to think if she was though so the guy who played the lead, he was dubbed with the voice of a of a TV David actor, read, David yeah. Stoll. Yeah. Um, now the, the the lead lady was Anna, and I can't remember. I don't. I can't guarantee that she was dubbed. I can't remember. But um, of sure course, that like makes that makes for an odd disconnect. You know, um, right. he had sound problems, and I think Nico wanted to change the performance and change lines and. Um, I had to very, so she has these very um stilted deliveries, and I was looking. I was like, I think that's all dubbed. It looks like she was dubbed through the whole thing. Well, I had to leave that production in editing because I had to j <clears throat> jump onto Halloween, right? And I was not going to give up Halloween, you know, no. for that. So, so, <laughs> no. Uh, no. so I told, um, so I told Nico that that I was going to have to leave, and he so he took over post. So I 
you know, he kind of did whatever he wanted. But the, the reason Bloodstone is an important film for me is because uh, Mustafa Akkad, the, you know, the leader of Halloween, um, found out that I had shot a movie in India. And he was a director, as you know, uh, and, yeah, he was very and he was very interested in, in shooting in India. He had shot all over North Africa for all those Muhammad Messenger of God movies with Anthony Quinn. Yeah, he did Anthony Quinn stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and um, he he was very interested in having me in and I, you know, for a meeting. And I think he wanted to pick my brain about shooting in India. So I kind of snuck into that audition on the back of being the guy from India who had just shot there. Um, okay. But then I, then I turned that meeting into an opportunity for Halloween. So in a way, <laughs> Bloodstone is my, uh, my, you know, get in free ticket to the Halloween audition. So I, I'm grateful to Bloodstone for that. I mean, it's, you know, there's things about it that I, that I, I think it's one of those movies that someone might describe as a guilty pleasure because it's a goofy movie, right. but there's some pretty funny stuff in it. Like the, um, what was it? Charlie, Charlie Brill, you know, who's got this kind of Muppet voice and does these slapstick bits. It's a bizarre performance, but there was a part that he had. Well, and it's funny too, because I was watching and I was like, Dwight, you would never get away with this now. <laughs> Caucasian it's, actor so culturally, it's so culturally inappropriate. I mean, <laughs> yeah, <totally. laughs> and he, there's lines like you'll be rich for an Indian. And I was like, yeah, oh, it, no, it's cringy. It's cringy. No, it's cringy for sure. But it, there's a there's one moment in this movie that I'm not even kidding you. It, it caught me so off guard. I cracked up laughing my head off, which was the part where um, the Charlie Brill character, he's like a detective or something, right? He's, he's Inspector Clouseau, basically. Yes, I was going to say to you, it's totally Peter Sellers he's doing, yeah. basically from the party. When he right. comes riding in on that little elephant, and oh he has that God. little bobblehead bit that he yeah. does throughout the movie, and the elephant does it, and then he does it, and it shows. I was I died laughing at that part. That no, was my favorite part. You, if you scour that movie, and you'll get little gems, like yeah. you'll get little moments of oh shit, that was funny, you know, like yeah. when Leslie kind of flips his cigarette, and it does. Actually, it has a pretty big look for a tiny little movie. I was going to say that to you. For your second film, it's a big movie. There's tons of effects and tons of extras and big, big location. I mean, it's it's not a. It looks like a lot of work. It's a ton of work. We had a thirty-six yeah. day schedule. We we wrapped on day seventy-two, and I'm always happy to tell young filmmakers, yeah. So it took us twice as long as they scheduled. <laughs> And uh, it, the reason we got so much is that the you know the money goes pretty far in India, right? In in at that time, especially in wardrobe and and locations, yeah. you, you can get a lot. Well, and so, it's, it's it's funny too because I was thinking about you know watching when I read that like things like that David Soul had been brought into dub um, Brett Stimley Stimley is that Brett, yeah Brett, yeah Brett. Did he ever, did you ever find out his reaction to finding out he, his voice had been replaced? Shockingly, no, because that all happened in post. And, right. and there, there was this huge, um, we, uh, there was just this huge rush to get Halloween done because 
you know, uh, there was a writer's strike coming up. I think it was on April 1st or maybe it was in March. And, and Mustafa didn't even have a finished script. He just had a treatment. Okay. And Alan McElroy and I completely reworked it. Um, and this is where there was this whole tension with John Carpenter. I didn't have any tension with him, but he was supposed to do Halloween for, and he and Deborah Hill, and they, they have a kind of disagreement with Mustafa about the direction of the character. And Mustafa eventually just bought everybody out and, and okay. said, no, I want to, I want to bring Michael back. And this is what I want to do. And, and they had, there were treatments, there were scripts and he just, he just wanted to start over. Yeah. So, um, so, so we had to hurry to get us. We, Alan wrote that script in two or three weeks. It was unbelievable. Wow. I mean, I sat with him every day, but he wrote it. I mean, we worked out scenes and, and all that, but we, we had to get that script legally turned in before the strike. Plus we had to get it out for October of 88 and uh, it was already, you know, March. So the whole thing was a kind of a race to get it done. So did you like, you know, Bloodstones in post, you jump straight out of from post on Bloodstone right into Halloween 4. Did you kind of just immediately put Bloodstone behind you at that point? You're like, that's yeah, I, it's like, but <laughs> like that was, uh, I needed money. It was a great experience. I met some wonderful people, but I honestly never thought about it again. I didn't think it would be released in any format. I, I right. thought that movie would be in a uh, a vault somewhere. But over the years, <laughs> it has snuck out. I think because there's so much interest in Rajnikan, and they did, right. to be fair. They did a really beautiful remaster, I have to say. So I was saying um, that that Arrow version I just watched, you know, wonderfully remastered, both in terms of audio and video. It looks great. It sounds great. I mean, it, and because as as you were saying, you know, the production values are so high, um, it looks like a very big movie with a, just a very strange cast. <laughs> a strange script, a strange cast is a <laughs> yeah. peculiar movie, but um, you know, it has and its it, wacky charms, though. It does. Wacky charms with Christopher Neem was in there overacting and act, you know, as the bad sort of Bond villain. Yeah, very this, Bondian, yeah. You know, sort of this pastiche of all these uh, kind of fun things. But if you can get in the rhythm of it, I guess it is kind of entertaining. I did, I did. I, you know what, I was watching, it's one of those movies where you're like, this is, if you're, if you catch this movie in the right frame of mind, it's a good time. And, and yeah, well, the fact that I laughed that I, I I haven't laughed that hard in a lot of comedies I've seen recently as I yeah. did in that scene with with him riding on the little elephant doing his little head. Yeah, that killed me. I thought it was just the funniest thing. Um, but yes, let's let's get into Halloween four because okay, uh, sure. that's Halloween four is I should preface one of the movies that made me want to become a filmmaker. I saw uh -oh. Halloween 4, yeah, right when it came out, which was, what, 88? So 88. I was a kid. And I remember I saw that movie, and it, I, I thought it was terrifying. I thought Donald Pleasance was just the greatest actor in the world. I, I became obsessed with him from that point on, as you can see. Well, I don't even see it, but I have a, a portrait of him in my office right there. I see there. him back there. I thought it was Hemingway. Yeah. But it's, uh... Yeah. <laughs> Um, but, uh, he was I, great in that movie too. He was great. 
Oh, such a wonderful performance. And so, you know, Halloween four has a very special place in my heart. And so I'm, I'm, I, I want to, I, so I've, but I know everything about it. So I was like, all right, the challenge here is I'm going to be talking to do I do a Halloween four, but I want to find out about stuff I haven't read in a hundred other places. So I've, right. I've kind of tried to comb through all that we know on Halloween four and consolidate maybe some things that people don't know as well, you know, because the Halloween franchise is so loved and so, but because of that, it's also, you know, it's been explored a lot. So one of the things I first was curious about was I read that when you were approached to do Halloween for, when the, it came up for you to do it, that your manager and, and, and agent were like, you mustn't do this movie. Was that because I, and I was curious, is that because in the eighties there was still sort of that stigma for directors that doing sequels was, could kill your career. Was that sort well, of, um, first of all, to be fair, the manager was for it. Um, the, but okay. a lot the, the, the agents, um, and particularly colleagues and people were very against it. I think it was because it was a number four, which seems like at that time it wasn't, the sequel itis thing wasn't as yeah. it's like you know being number four plus it had been like 10 years and halloween three was such a misfire that it just all the all everything was lined up for this to be a disaster right um you know there was no there was no jamie lee curtis it was um, a number and four. And was she ever approached about doing the fourth film? Was there ever talk? Well, about she was not. This is only based on what I've heard. She was not remotely interested. And um, we did get permission from her to use her photograph. when right. That scene where Myers rummages around in the closet. Yeah, yeah right. we were able to get her photograph, which I think was very important, honestly. Um, it's such a simple idea, but it was very important to have her, her face in there. So, so I, I felt like everybody was saying, Dwight, you know, you're going to do the, the fourth, it's going to get buried. You're going to be uh, unfavorably compared to John Carpenter, who who's everybody's darling, you know, everybody loves yeah. him. And so they're going to think you, you're, you're poaching off him. It's like, there's nothing good can happen out of this. Yeah. So, yes, uh, there was a lot of discouraging uh, noise from the background. And what made you go, fuck it, I'm going to do it anyway? Uh, money, number one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, speaking, you know, these things aren't always just artistic decisions. And, of course uh, yeah. you know, I was broke. And they were offering me a very uh, nice fee and uh, Mustafa was going to do it as a DGA film. So it was going to get me into the DGA. And then I thought, okay, so there's that. And then I thought, if I could do this, I had this idea if I could do like a, it, it was really a police thriller in my mind. It was like an yeah. escape. It was like an escaped convict with a detective on the hunt in a small yeah. town. It was more, I'm not sure what we came up with, but it was more Silence of the Lambs. It was a little more of a thriller than a, than a genre. Yeah, I saw it as a thriller. I mean, there, there, are some, there are some good, interesting kills in it, but it wasn't that pattern of like teenagers, you know, screwing and then getting killed. 
you know, it, yeah. that that whole Friday the 13th pattern of a slasher movie. You know, well, there's not even, my, you know, you don't even have any TNA in Halloween 4. There's no. Right. You know, well, there's, there's a hint of it with um, uh, the, the girlfriend. Yeah, but we don't, but, you know, we don't even see her. We don't even see her. You sort of, sort of show the side, but there's never that head-on TNA. Everybody, think, everybody thinks they saw it, but they didn't. It was like very yeah. carefully edited. Um, yeah, there was one frame before the nipple. I mean, it was it was cut with, <laughs> <laughs> but it was almost made it sexier by holding it back in some yeah. way. And it's by right by the fire and all that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And um it was sexy. <laughs> but so I shot it in my mind. I was doing a police procedural, which takes us back to your question earlier about 70s movies, you know, because I, I did shoot it as a cop thriller. Um, you know, the crime scene uh, where they find the ambulance in the river, yeah, and and that's yeah. very much out of a, a million detective thrillers, and and then I love the logic that Alan and I worked into, which is, you know, he goes he goes to the gas station to get his overalls, he goes to the uh, the pharmacy to get his mask, you, you know, he throws he throws Bucky into the uh, electrical grid to shut down the power. He uh, burns up the phone lines to, to cut the town off. You know, everything is for a reason. So they're not random kills. The kills are all kind of with a kind of with a point. And yeah. Um, yeah. and then also the way Donald Pleasance teams up with Bo Starr, the local sheriff. I I was I was definitely in my mind, I thought I was shooting kind of a cop film. Um but I mean, of course, it becomes a Michael Myers film. But that was my that was my tone, I would say. And it's interesting too because it's like you you talked about how Carpenter and Hill had prepared like a treatment for it. I'm guessing was their treatment? Did he even have Michael in, it or were they still trying to do the? Well, if they Michael were going to do Michael, they wanted to do something supernatural. This is what this. By the way, I don't have any insight on this. This is only what I read. That that they wanted to have Michael be a more supernatural character after Halloween three, uh, I guess because in Halloween two, you know, he's blown up and Donald was blown yeah. up, and yeah. all this stuff happened. So, and I think Mustafa was much more interested in him being grounded. Now we did lean into the supernatural a bit with the transfer of the demonic force from Michael to Jamie, you know, right. through the hand. Uh, so we touched on. It's pretty subtle, though. There's no effect or anything when that. Right, happens. right. You don't see him as a as a demon or a ghost or something. Yeah, that's right. So um, I do think that was a point of contention uh, between them, but you'd have to ask John Carpenter. I'm not, that's what I understand, though. And you know, Donald Pleasance to me is the star of that movie. Um, you know, Danielle Harris and, and Ellie Cornell are. are of course, brilliant and wonderful in it, and and they they have major roles, but but it's Donald's movie to me. And yeah. it's, it always was. Um, when you and and Alan McElroy were were putting this thing together and 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 talking about what it would be, was that a des was that a decision that you guys knew early on was that you could get Pleasance back and that that you wanted to kind of make this his his movie? Well, it was a little iffy. Uh, Mustafa um, promised us that he would get him. 
But Donald would not commit uh, until he'd read the script because he was very concerned about doing a knockoff, um, you know, that didn't, didn't help the franchise and that would not make him look good. So we wrote it with John as well. So I, you know, I imagine John's lack of involvement also might've been playing in his. I think that was tricky for him. I think there was an allegiance issue. He didn't want to betray that. Um, When we finally sent a draft over to him, I don't know if he was in England or if he was here, but um, then he got on board because he really did like the script. Um, But we did, yes, we did write it for him, absolutely. But again, going back to the cop thing, we wrote him, you know, as he'd been established as this, more as a detective. Yeah. You know, like on the hunt, uh, on the hunt for an escaped killer. That's kind of the through line. I mean, in the in the original, he's set up as being a psychiatrist, but he never really right. had that role. He's always got a gun in his hand. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like- <laughs> once you once you, give, once you give the doctor a gun, he becomes a cop, kind of. Well, I always remember that line in the in the first movie where he says to um to the cop, he says, "You must think me a pretty sinister doctor when he's got the because he's he's you know pulls his gun out immediately, right. um, you know, and it's but it, you know for me as a as a fan of the 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 character and and, and the original films I, it, to me it just seemed like you know and especially if if Jamie Lee wasn't going to be part of this I can't imagine the film without Loomis without Donald Pleasance like I just can't I don't know what the the movie would have been without him I mean I'm I guess you no, know another no by by having him and Michael that it became a Halloween movie however yeah. Jamie uh, I mean Danielle. Uh, and Ellie, I think both kind of outdid themselves with their, with oh, their, God, yeah. as, as the sisters, you know, they, their bond as sisters was so effective. Um, and real. I've always thought that the, the, the realness of that, of those two characters, they feel like a real little girl and a real young lady. They don't feel like sort of Hollywood kid actor, Hollywood teenager. Oh, they no, feel like that's... real people. Yeah, and when they're up in that roof, I mean, you're scared for them. For hundred you know, percent, yeah. And that goes back to my your earlier question about my particular what I like as a as a movie going. I think that that kind of real world thing that I that appeals to me was what I got from the sisters. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't right. It wasn't jokey. It wasn't quippy. It wasn't. It doesn't mean you can't have humor. But but everything is sort of like this is really happening. This yeah. and and that's I think that makes it scary because this shit is actually happening. And I think it's what separates for for me from from you know as much as some of the other sequels might be fun or they're a good time. But but I, what I think for gets so right that a lot of the sequels didn't and 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 keeps in in tone with the original film is that in the original film jamie lee curtis's character laurie strode character and her group of girlfriends feel very real and authentic they feel like real young girls absolutely and 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 that was so important and a lot of that you know even john is attributed to deborah hill who wrote all that dialogue but but i think in four you know jamie and and uh and Ellie Cornell's character, Rachel, you captured that feeling again of these are these are real young girls. These are, you know, so when when they're in peril, um, it's not, you know, kind of the either the over the top, like screen queen who's like a tough ass and I just kick the shit out of Michael type character. 
Uh, she's not, you know, got a shotgun. She's, we think she might get killed. It feels like it could happen. So, that, so but, the suspense is very real because of that. When Allie drives that truck at the end and she, you know, runs Michael over, um, just the, the ferociousness of, you know, she becomes Linda Hamilton at the end. You yeah, know, she, yeah, totally. She he, and, and that's what you want, though, right? You want a character in a movie to change. By the right. end of that movie, she's not the same girl she was no. at the beginning who's worried Fierce. about what the boy at school thinks. Right. No, she's fearless. And um, so, look, there's a lot of people who, who uh, deserve credit for that movie. Um, Alan certainly um, did a great job. Um, I think I cast it perfectly. If I went, I was just going to. That was my next question. Is I was going to say there are so many wonderful supporting performances from Michael Pataki, who who brings so much gravity to the film early on. Who, oh, who yeah. you know is a wonderful character actor in his own right. Him and Donald Pleasance together, I was like, fuck off, that's great. Putting yeah, those two and both, both Star was great. Both stars. Uh, Sasha Jensen's wonderful in it. Uh, all of these, you know, all the, and, and I don't remember the name of the actor uh, who plays Reverend Sayre in that wonderful scene. Oh, my God. Movie. His name was Felipe. Carmen, Car something. Carmen Felipe, maybe. I think I he's think passed. I think that's right, yeah. But, but man, yeah, he's he was... Gone, yeah. he was what an unusual character. But that whole scene is wild, right? I'm one of my favorite scenes. Him and, um, you know, scenes. can't can't kill with a, where a man don't die like a man dies. or whatever. I mean, there's all yeah. these incredible scene. It was Oh, you're hunting them all right. Yeah. You know, I know when I see it, you know, that whole, it's great. It's this scene of like, it's almost like, you know, Whenever I see that scene, I'm like, you always want to know what that guy's story is. Like, what's he hunting? What's his deal? Like, what? How well, do you get Alan, like this? And Alan already always wanted to make a movie about that guy, but you know, it was day one, and I'm when I put the camera back on Donald to get his coverage. When he's looking at him, I almost felt I know he's a great actor, but I almost felt like Donald Pleasance himself was like, "What the fuck is he talking about?" <laughs> Because because he looks the looks he gives him like oh my god this guy is that shit. I love that part where when when the the priest says would you like a drink and he's sneezing and all that stuff yeah and yeah and we actually get to see Loomis smile and it's yeah, such he a wonderful he moment a smile yeah and you know what's so great about it is that Loomis is a character is so crazed all the time because he's so obsessively hunting Michael. Yeah. It was so nice to give him this moment, this very human moment where he smiles. And for one second, we get to get a, a real sense of this a is a person real guy. There. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Which I think just, you know, from a perspective of for the audience, it, it just it refreshes because I think Loomis in the fifth one, they went too far with his obsession. And in that one, you're like, now he's practically a villain. He's crazy. He's putting kids right. in jeopardy and it's just right. it's too much. He's gone crazy. Yeah, and I think just that scene is so helpful. You know, I always remember the part when he when he's running to get into the car and those asshole kids take off and blow the dust in his face. Right. And and watching the movie with a group of friends and them all going, aw. And it's like people yeah. felt... Because you, you, Donald Pleasance is a wonderfully likable actor to begin yeah, with. Yeah, he didn't deserve that. No, it's horrible, those awful kids. Um, 
you know, I'm just curious, like overall for you, what your experience was working with Donald Pleasance on that film, what you kind of, what that experience was like for you. Cause I mean, I'll never get that chance and I'm such a fan. I, I, I've always wanted well, to first ask of all, I, it, it took me a minute because I did go in as a fanboy. I, I had, was enough of a, of age person to, to know the great escape. Right. So I remember him as the blind escapee with James Garner, you know, yeah. in a Stephen McQueen movie. So it wasn't so much the Bond thing that I knew, but I knew Great Escape. And yeah. I was like going to be working with the guy from, from the Great Escape. And I was, oh my God. I mean, I was starstruck and I was intimidated, uh, but I kept it together. <laughs> and then um, once I realized that he wanted to work with me, that's what I was afraid of. Because he could take the position of like, look, I this is my character. I know better than anybody how to do Loomis. And yeah. you just you just tell me what my mark is and you let me take care of it from here. He could have done that, right? But I tested him early, especially in that scene we're talking to. And I started giving him notes, not telling him what to do, but it's just, you know, talking about the scene with him and giving him different points of view about it. And when I saw that underneath him being Donald Pleasance, there was the actor. Do you know what I mean? Like yes. the, the English. The guy who got Harold Pinter and been a stage yes, actor. Exactly. And, yeah. The actor was under there, under the raincoat, under the thing, under Loomis. There was there was the the guy on stage, as you say, you know, in, in London theater. And he started to absorb it like a sponge like he he wanted to be engaged in the and not all actors are like that but some are i mean wesley yeah. doesn't want to be engaged for example but but um and so once we started uh not arguing but really talking about the scenes and the character i found he he was excited to go to work um, he did get tired, and I had to learn this. Same thing with Jonan Baker. He would he would run out of gas about four or five o'clock, and he would start to want his, you know, he would reward himself at the end of the day with I don't know what his choice, whether it was wine or I don't know what. He, but he a cocktail or two, yeah, yeah. He would, that was he was a drinker, and uh, that that reward was waiting for him. So the sooner he left, sooner he left the set the sooner he was going to get to his cocktail. But I had to plan things so that between 11 and 2 or 11 and 3, I actually started to adjust the board to make sure my work with him was right in the middle of the day when he was rested and he was uh, engaged. And then he would, he would taper off in the afternoon. And like a lot of actors, when he got tired, then he would get cranky. Right. Now, he wouldn't take it out on me, but you could tell with PAs or wardrobe or he'd start to snap a little bit at people. And it was and I would just think, oh, OK, he's he's tired. He's done. You know, yeah, <laughs> he's tired. So yeah. let's just get what we can get and let him go home. So once I learned his work habits, um, we were great because I love talking to actors and he he didn't. You know, he didn't. He he wanted to engage, so we ended up 
having a real, I think, collaboration because that last scene when he screams at the bottom of the stairs, yeah, you know, all the early takes, he's like, oh no, 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 and I, and I kept saying, let's try again, let's try again, and he was, I finally said to Donald, I said, look, it's it's the end of the shoot. What do we have to lose, Donald? What do we have to lose? If it's awful, we'll cut it out. I'll let you see the cut. But what do we have to lose? Because he was afraid it would be over the top. Yeah. And it, would, it would be comical. It would be cartoonish. Hammy. He didn't want to. Yeah. He couldn't stand the idea of being hammy. I, there was one other time when I pushed him. And I said, what, what is it? It's just film. I said, it's just film. It's like, there's no risk here. Just try it. And and he went to the bottom of those stairs, and you know, the little girl shows up with the scissors at the top of the stairs, and you you know the film so well. He goes crazy. Yeah, yeah. And 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 watching Loomis dissolve into madness is what makes that work. Yeah. And and of course he's such a good actor that it doesn't seem over the top because everything no, he does is, is grounded. In fact, so that, I think it. it for most viewers, it's a goosebump-inducing moment. That that oh, yeah. scream of his from him with what's happening. You're like, oh my god! Like it's shocking, yeah. Because of who it's coming from. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Right? If it had been, you know, if it had been uh, Rachel, it wouldn't have landed no, that way. Not the same, but it's coming no. from Loomis. Yeah. And there's another scene in the police station was where he says, "I'm telling you, he's here in in this town." And he kept doing it. Like, I'm telling you, you know, he's here in this town. And I kept saying, Donald, it's not enough. People are going to die tonight. You know they're going to die tonight. You know there's going to be a massacre tonight. He's like, well, you want me to overact then? You know, it's like, (laughs) I can't do an English accent. But he was worried about overacting. Right. He said, Donald, the stakes, you're, you're here and the stakes are here. Just don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Well, and, and then know, he, he doesn't take. say that because in that scene, one of the things I love about Halloween Four, among many other things, is that I love that the cops listen to him. In so many horror movies, someone goes to the police and says something bad is happening, and the cops go, "Yeah, right." Yeah, and yeah, and yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. a device to not involve cops in the story. Right. But in this movie. Loomis comes and says, no, you know, this guy's here again and he's back and he's going to kill everybody that gets in his way. And Bo Starr goes, you might be full of shit, but I don't want to take the chance that you're not. And it's a we great better check, We better check this out. Yeah. And it's a, it goes against all the conventions of the genre because right. the cops never listen to people when they tell them that stuff. Right. You know, he, gets, he gets his gun and he goes to have a look. Yeah. No, it's, it's a great moment. I mean, it's, it, you know, and to, I think it's Bo Star again. Not it, it's so much his performance too, because when he kind of takes a beat and he goes, "All right, I'm gonna fucking listen to this guy," you're like, you know, and Bo Star's a, I I've never met him, but but he looks like a big man to me. He doesn't look like yeah, he he's man. like six three or something. Yeah, broad shouldered. He just looks like yeah. a big dude. Yeah, he's a by the way, he's like an a tough, he was an he was NFL that? player. He was oh, an really? NFL oh, player. There. That explains it. Yeah. You know, to me, it's that, and Donald, not a big man. Donald's a shorter right. guy. Like, you know, Donald is, makes a real impression on him. And you, and I think you're right. If Donald had done that sort of quiet and subtle, that wouldn't have worked. We need it. This guy needs to believe that they're in real peril. You know, it's right. like, that's, you know, and, and, and he does. And it's from that moment on, you know, it's because I think of Halloween four from, 
from my perspective, you know, as a filmmaker and having watched this movie, I have to tell you, Dwight, I've probably seen this movie like 20 times. Uh-oh. <laughs> it is, it, I, because I've, it is such a, a build. The whole movie, yeah. is does it starts and doesn't stop. And it just builds and builds and builds and builds. And I, for me as a filmmaker, looking, you know, because pacing is so important. And I think it's really hard to build the kind of tension and atmosphere that you did in this movie. And, and it isn't a gore show. And it isn't, you know, like, for example, one of the more gruesome moments where Michael shoves the shotgun through um, Kathleen Kinmount's character. Right. That You don't really show it. It's People might think that they see more than they actually do. Right. You don't. It's, you don't it's, sho the it's shocking, but it's not, you, you know what's happened. Yeah. But, but you don't quite see it. That's right. Um, the the really genius thing was that that thumb through the head gag. Yeah, um, no retractable thumb bit. Yeah, I mean this, it, it, the simplest effect, but so effective. But I'm telling you, it it pushed people back in their chairs, and that was in the first like 12 minutes. It was so shocking, and no one had quite seen that exact gag before. Yeah. Um, and it's not really a bloody gag. It's just what your mind thinks is you've just seen. Yeah. It's so horrifying. Yeah. That it really, it really sets up. So no, it's it's not a gore fest. It it is like I said. I we made it as a cop thriller, <clears throat> even though Donald is technically not a cop. I mean, both star is. But I think that's why people respond to it is because they believe the characters. I have been. I've taken some bullets for that movie being too slow, for sure. But I think if, if it's it's okay to just take a second, you know. Absolutely, to, absolutely. Because that, that's you know, to me, the fifth one. I don't know if you've ever watched the fifth one, but I <laughs> I haven't been able to. But it's okay. Yeah, in the fifth one, tonally, it's 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 much faster and not as effective because of that. You know, I think the fact that this movie, one of the scariest moments in this movie, to me. And it's not even a scary scene, but there's a shot where um, I think it's Rachel and the deputy or Rachel and, and Bo Star are in, it's all dark and they're at like a CB radio and they're trying to call yeah, yeah, yeah. the signal. And it, it's wonderfully lit. Who is the DP on the show, by the way? That was Peter Collister. And he and I literally were high school buddies. Oh. And then, he, and then, and then he, you know, he shot my student film and he, so he and I have been friends forever. We haven't been able to work as adults as much as we'd hoped, but um, he, he's had quite a good career, but um, he did KGB for me. He get, did Getting Even and he did Halloween. And then because of Halloween, he, his career kind of ramped up and he started yeah, getting I mean his lighting is beautiful in Halloween 4. There's some great... It's very, it's very 80s, though. I will have to say, I give him shit about it sometimes. Because it is of a period. Because there's a lot of that blue in there that you wouldn't see today. Right. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, but, because, you know, I, that's okay. It, the movie was... No, it's fine. It was, yeah. it was a little bit of the moment. Everybody, you know, in those, <clears throat> those days, the moon was blue. It just yes. was blue. Yeah. <laughs> so that's something that's something Dean Cundy always joked with me about. I remember we were shooting something uh that, that was a very dark thing and, and um the they'd put up sort of a blue gel kind of look and, and Dean walked in and he said, No, 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 we're not doing old movie moon, we're doing 
we have we know better now moon so let's yeah. make it gray okay like and i laughed because i said i was a little nervous that i was gonna have to come up to you and say can we not make it look like this and he was like come on give me give me a break i was like yeah okay right you got I, used this. Call it, I used to call it canon blue too because there's a company called canon films yeah and, of course and yeah. they made hundreds and hundreds of movies um but they always all had that blue all of them blue every Dolph yes. Lundgren movie smurf lighting yeah um right. <laughs> um now was there ever talk of you coming back for the fifth film? Did that ever yes, come up? Yes, Mustafa called me many times about it. He was very gracious and he said, please come do this. And um, I felt two things. One, I, I, I didn't want to get typecast right away. I do feel in retrospect that I should have done it. But um, on the other hand, there was noise about me doing a Phantom with Robert, which was a very uh, appealing um, p possibility. And uh, so, so you know, to do something brand new and to do it with Robert seemed like, you know, I, I and also, you know how sometimes, I don't want to call it luck, but sometimes the, you know, the stars line up and I felt like everything worked on Halloween 4. And what if it and just, like, do I want to push my luck with this? <laughs> do I want to push my luck? Exactly. Yeah. And I so agree. I said, I said, I am so grateful for this opportunity. And, and I so respect you. And I did, I respected Mustafa. He was just a great guy. And, um, but I just wanted to go try something else. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, to me, it's like, I wish you had done five because I, I, I was so unhappy with what after four with the direction they went in five. I mean, I'm you haven't seen it, but like we set for it them, all up for him too. We set it all up. We gave we handed them five. Oh and man, if, if Alan like, had written that, if Alan had written that script, um, like no, I'm sure you know this, but like they killed off Rachel in the most mean spirited, shitty way, and. For audiences who had seen four, it was a slap in the face. You're like, we care about this character. How dare you? Like, it was awful. And just, and just this random death of Rachel with no. Could, yeah, it was. They wanted, and and Ellie Cornell, I have read, the, originally that her death was supposed to be that she got stabbed through in the mouth with a pair of scissors. Oh, and Ellie God. Cornell was like, no, you're not killing Rachel like that. I won't like that. And she refused. But it was just, you know, did you and Alan ever talk about what you would have done with five if you had done it or uh, if you were uh, we knew that we knew that when he went down that you know uh i guess the well is what you'd call it when he's blasted with guns and he crashes down into the well we knew that we would we had options for what to do with michael um we had built up a couple you know there were tunnel opportunities and you know there's but um we didn't really get there because you know, it just wasn't going to work out. And, you know, I love going to make Fan of the Opera, so I don't regret it. But I do <clears throat> regret it for the fans a little bit because I think, I think, um, you know, Five could have, you know, we, we could have done something. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, uh, I love, I love Halloween 4. I'm so glad that you did it. Um, but, uh, I really wish you'd done five. <laughs> well, 
but I understand your reasons for not doing it because the Phantom, which which the Phantom of the Opera, which you did right after in '89, and you know we were talking a little bit before we started recording about this. You know, it's a it's it really now I think has come into its own as a project that has developed a fan base and a following, and it's a it's a great film. I mean, it's 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 unlike any other film version of the Phantom. Robert is gives this wonderfully committed performance that's nothing like Freddy, despite the, I think, really goofy marketing yeah. campaign they threw yeah, Well, I can well they basically made it look like Freddy was playing the Phantom, not like it well, was Robert they, playing the Phantom. They thought that was clever and that was going to put asses in the seats, as they say, but it, was, it backfired. But, you know, I can always tell with Phantom a little bit about, because Robert, as you know, goes to all the conventions. Yeah. And there was a time where... Uh, you know, of course, everybody, Freddy, 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 Freddy. But then he saw this shift. Um, I actually just worked with Robert. Um, there, he, he, there was this shift where people were really coming up to him about Phantom a lot. Now, uh, really a lot. And there's like right. a bunch of girls who have a very romantic connection to that version of Phantom. And um, so you you can just watch the reviews have improved the the ratings have improved it's just it, it's just people who find it now are are just enjoying it which is kind of satisfying it's a you know it's an older title but there's no other phantom like it no because i mean it has this you know at the time i think people were at odds with the juxtaposition of of you know the classical retelling of the of the book with these kind of sort of more slashery elements, you know, which, which, you know, I like, was that something that was sort of foisted on you to include that stuff, the gore, or were you, were you open to that from the get -go? I was open to it. And I think the feeling was if we're going to have Robert in it, the audience is going to have certain expectations that there's right. going to be some horror elements. And I think also the director's just coming off Halloween four yeah right. so there's going to be expectations that go with that um jill had a following herself because of the stepfather, the stepfather. yeah um and so we felt like it was okay to do this topic horror i didn't i didn't mind the gore honestly i mean i'm not a big violence guy by any means but i i kind of didn't mind it in that context um, what I think is bizarre about that too is it's not like the Phantom of the Opera is a story that doesn't have any kind of supernatural or or horror elements. It's not like it's some you know love story only. It's it has it's the Phantom. He's a scary character. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, no, it's, 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 it's it is a horror. Story. Yeah, and and I think there was. I just think people who liked the musical. Were yeah, I was just going to say that Andrew Lloyd Webber fucked it up for you. <laughs> yeah, they were they were just because yeah. if we had gone right from Lon Chaney to the Hammer version to ours, I I don't think that would have been a hard trajectory. I think what got in the no. middle of it was this very beautiful romantic musical that yeah. that everybody fell in love with, and so to come off this Broadway musical and then go back into the horror. I think that threw people for a loop for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not so that things... gory now. It was gory then. It's not, you know, it's not that gory now. And and the gore that's there was it Kevin Yeager who did or Yager that did the yeah he gore? did 
and he I did mean, it's great. Wonderfully, and 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 uh, John Beekler worked on it as well, right? John Beekler worked on it too. Those guys did great work. I mean, the gore that's there is awesome gore. It's not like it's badly done gore. <laughs> like, you no, know, I think the thing that really got people was was this, the the surgical stuff. I think. Do you yeah. think though that? Do you think Dwight that Roberts? you know, association with Freddie, which was very prevalent at that time you made this film. It's not like Freddie was a well, new character. It was still the 80s. It was still the yeah, 80s. Yeah, right. I mean, what was it, 89? He did the movie? Yeah. So Freddie... So Roberts, he was at the height of his Freddie. Yeah, like that yeah. Exactly. Were you at all worried when he was cast that that would be a distraction for people? That they'd just be thinking about Freddie the whole time? Not really. I knew no. that he was... A, I knew that he was a trained actor... Yeah. And I and I knew that he was a character actor before he was Freddie, and um, I, I should have been, I guess, but I wasn't. Right. And and um, I don't know. I just that world was so fascinating and so colorful and so you know the music. Misha Siegel scored that is just yeah. it's as good as anybody's done. Um, I just, well, I know, you know, you, you and I were talking a little bit before we start recording about just also, I mean, I know there was a whole deal with you basically inherited the sets from another bigger production that preceded it, right? Like, it's a big looking movie, beautiful well, sets. Man, man, yeah, we had these standing sets that we were able to use in Budapest, these huge, beautiful sets. And, um, you know, the production... This was in 89. It was still, Hungary was still behind the curtain, technically. I mean, there were Soviet troops all over the place. It was not, this wasn't after the fall of the Berlin Wall. So, um, but the, a hard currency, either pounds or dollars or anything that was hard currency, went a long way when you were in an East European country. Right. You could buy a lot for, you know, less money than you could in London or something. I mean, I think it's also like you watching the film, there's these wonderful little things. Like Bill Nye shows up in a great bit part. He's so funny. Every delivery he, he gives in it is yeah, but he wasn't Bill Nye, he wasn't Bill Nye yet. He was just I know. A, he was just a really good English actor. Yeah. He came in, by the way, and read for that in London when we were casting. He this he did he comes in, we we were probably reading it was a big part that, you know, the stage manager. And we read maybe 20, 30 people that day. And he came in and he read. We didn't know who he was. He was just another guy that came in and read. He left the room. We all looked at each other. He's like, who was that? Do you know what I mean? Even then. You could like, tell he was. Yeah. Like, what just happened in this room? You know, you could tell. You didn't have to look at his resume or whatever. He just was up a notch that's one of those things in casting you know i mean when that happens where you just thank the casting gods when they just give you that actor that's perfect and you're like oh we know exactly yeah. who we need for this part yeah it wasn't like a struggle we had a choice of three it was like yeah. if, if this guy's available just offer him the part i mean yeah and then molly way. shannon you know and then the little bit part she's in <laughs> like that's priceless she was so happy to be there and she was just a young actress um and i think she and jill struck up a little friendship um you know molly went on to be molly shannon 
Yeah, she's a big. I mean, I, I everyone loves her. She's awesome. She it's is. weird. We were talking a bit about Jill Sholin's career. Like, you know, she was so good in The Stepfather and so good again here. Like, why? You know, but her her career never really. I don't know. It just didn't seem to take off for her. There was a couple movies after Phantom. <clears throat> There's one I think called Popcorn, and maybe yeah, with D. Wallace. And then maybe one after that. I think that was a troubled production and didn't have a good result. Uh, I haven't. No, seen Popcorn it. was a messy shoot. Yeah. Yeah. And then so I think and then um, there was. I think there may have been one other. But I think it's, you know, it was just life. I think she got married. I know she got married yeah. to a composer. She had some children. And I don't know. It's yeah. just, you know, life, life takes different twists and turns. I think if her film after Phantom had been some kind of success, uh, I, I think Popcorn was, you know, don't forget Phantom was a bomb. We can't, we can't just right. skip, over, skip over the fact that Phantom of the Opera was a financial yeah. bomb. And it was not critically well received either. No, I was reading reviews for it, and they were pretty hard on it. Yeah. Yeah. So Robert got a few good nods nods for it, but that was about it. They came after me. They came after the movie. Um, I was pretty immune to, you know, at the beginning of your career, you know, you you get crushing reviews. You just want to crawl up into a ball, but yeah. Then after a while, you start to get a little tougher. And it's like, no, fuck you. That's a good movie. You just missed it. <laughs> it's yeah. Like, yeah. You, like you, you know, you're wrong. And, yeah. and then you get a little, little, like, you get a little more confident. And it's like, no, no, you just wait. In 15, 20 years, you'll see. But well, that was true. Blood, when you've made a bloodstone at this point, you you kind of know the difference between when you have made it work and when you've got something weird on your hands. <laughs> Bloodstone. I think weird is such a good word for bloodstone. It's just weird. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I absolutely have to tell you that I'm going to be telling a lot of people just to check it out for the elephant. Like this, that, just that moment. There is, is entertainment value in that movie. Totally. And it's funny too, because, you know, going back to fan for a sec, watching fan, there's some really interesting little touches too that in the movie that, that to me help make it unique. Like there's the part where... That, that stage hand when Robert ties like his foot around and drops him and then he pulls him back up and he slashes him open the blood sprays in Robert's face and Robert does this really interesting thing where it's almost like it's, he gets a sexual thrill from it oh yeah that's kind of very oh. orgasmic sort of reaction yeah no, that was that was a weird shot in in, in a very porny kind of way but I think <laughs> I, I think Freddie was um he knew that was he knew he had like maybe five or six Freddy lines that were there yeah. where he would, he would kill somebody and then have a quip, you yeah. know, they were, they were, they were written in. They, we, those I did feel were an obligation. I wish I, I didn't have to shoot them, but I understood it, yeah. but he would, he would try to do it and twist it in some way. Like the guy, he kills the critic in the bathhouse and he says, you're, I can't remember the line, but before the kill, he says something Freddy-ish and then, you yeah. know, beats his head against a wall or something. But yeah, I, I think... Like, puts a towel over his head and bonks yeah, him the wall. Yeah. yeah, so I don't know. I think we did... We're haunted a little bit by Freddy. But then right. on the other hand, that's that's why the movie got made. So, you know. Yeah. 
The only thing that, that to me where where I, when I was watching it, I uh, and maybe a, a second viewing would help with this. The framing device of kind of her at the theater and then it goes back into the pet that threw me for a second. I was like, so is she? Is this all just a dream? Or like I was kind of trying to decipher what that framing was, but right. Um, but it doesn't really matter in the end anyway. <laughs> it well, it it's it is odd. First of all, right. Um, he he does come to her through the book that she finds in the library. Yeah. You, you see the is blood. Is that the idea when the blood comes through and gets on her it's hands? Like, is that that? Yeah. Okay. It's like the past is literally seeping through into the present. That was a tricky effect to do. Uh, just a practical effect, but the, right. the, the, the blood is coming through and, and pulling and pulling her back. And then when she sings the music, when she sings his music, the music itself pulls her back through time. Um, and then when we did that thing with the mirror, I was trying to shatter, literally shatter time. And because okay. uh, uh, you see her turning and then there's this carriage going around in circles and that's supposed to be the unwinding of a clock. Okay. And and then, and the unwinding of the clock goes with her spinning, and you see her in the mirror and the chart. And then, so the whole th she's pulled back by the phantom. Yeah. And then, and then at the end, he comes back into her world and tries right. to get her, and tries to get and her. When he's sort of the the uh, what is he supposed to be like the the producer of the show or something? He's right? like a theater impresario, and right, and, yeah, and um. You can't even see it, but in the original audition that she's doing, Robert's actually sitting up in the seats. Um, okay. so, so the fans was watching her audition. I should have shot that differently. Um, so, yeah, we were playing around with those ideas, but um, it was a, a craven attempt to make the movie more of the moment, more more. Right. You know, not Give it so a, a bit of a stylization kind of. Yeah, I do think right. the ending is haunting when that totally that street musician is playing on the violin and she hears the music and she looks over her shoulder. It's really it's haunting. It's a great beat of just kind of for the audience where you're like, oh, you know, it's just sort of that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It really it's very, works. Great. She had, Jill had a great look on her face on that. Yeah. And it, so, you know, uh, I'm just looking at the time, so I'm going to kind of speed through these these last few questions so I can get you out of here. But um, if it's okay with you, we're about at a 15 minute marker, if that's okay. Yeah. 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just uh, compress this down a little bit. Um, so after you finished Phantom, you know, for a while, you did quite a few action films. Uh, you did yeah. things like uh, Marked for Death, Murdered 1600, Rapid Fire. Um, you know, but I wanted, I was curious, you know, we were talking a little bit about this before we started to record, uh, you know, two of those movies, I'll be, I'll be p polite here, feature actors that are pretty notoriously difficult people to deal with. Um, I was curious if you, if you had that experience with those two people and sort of you what Stephen, your approach. Stephen and Wesley or Stephen and, and Brandon? Which two? Stephen and Wesley. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me tell you why the. You said it, not me. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you why the why the action movies because it was a weird sudden turn from horror. 
Um, just like you have, Stephen was screening Halloween for, and I don't know why, someone was screening it for him at Warner Brothers, I think for another reason. Maybe he was looking at an actor. I'm not sure. But he was, uh, Steven Seagal, was very taken with that movie. And uh, he asked to meet with the director. So I went up to his office at Warner Brothers. Um, uh, this is before I had done Phantom, but after Halloween. Okay. And he was doing a movie at Warner Brothers. He's very interested uh, to, for me to direct it because he liked Halloween 4 so much. It's called Hard to Kill. And uh, I auditioned for it. I met with some people at the studio and the studio, Steven actually wanted me, but the studio, studio nixed it because they didn't think I had, you know, studio experience. So I went off to do Phantom. Steven had a bad experience on Hard to Kill. He didn't like the whole thing. It just didn't go well for him. So when he got another opportunity to make a film, this time at Fox, uh, he remembered me and called me back in again. And again, the studio said, no, 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 we can't. This guy doesn't, he's not a studio director. And that's when Steven put his foot down because he had been talked out of me once before. And he said, no, this is the guy. So my, so Steven wanted me. And I think that gave me a very different perspective with him than a lot of people right. who have worked with him. So again, I mean, look, he's not an easy character. Don't get me wrong, but we were able to collaborate on the film because think about it. If, if he, if he fights for me, it's not in his interest to then sabotage me. No, right? that doesn't make sense. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. So he was invested in having me succeed in that movie so that he wouldn't be wrong you know right. we told yeah. we told you Stephen, this was a mistake and we told you so and all that kind of stuff because nobody's out to see anybody do well it's all it's all daggers and arrows all day long and so yeah um and so i was really able to work with him we had a little bit of a kerfuffle in post but nothing too bad and um so I do hear one nightmare story after another about working with Steven Seagal, and I'm sure everybody's had their own problems because he's a big personality. He's very, he's kind of a controlling, uh, he, you know, he's kind of a know-it-all, to be honest. Um, mm -hmm. It's not always wrong, though. This is the weird thing. You can't just shut down Steven's ideas because he's not wrong sometimes. And sometimes right. he's like, he's got a brilliant idea. And you have to just go, wait a minute, forget who's saying it is, you know, so there's a lot of the Santeria and Mark for Death, a lot of the really cool stuff. Was, that was all Steven doing that. Just don't I let mean, him I, sing in the movie, that's all. What's that? Just don't let him sing in your yeah, movie. Yeah, but he brought me Jimmy Cliff, so, you know, who can complain? But um, <laughs> so in terms of, of Steven being a difficult guy, he's a big personality. Um, but I am frankly, honestly grateful to him because he, uh, well, he got the gig, I guess. Right. I mean, he it's fought for me. Yeah. He yeah, fought for right. me. And Mark about, about, was a hit. What about Snipes on Murdered 1600? Did you have a, 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 any trouble there? Well, uh, Wesley Snipes was really, um, 
you know, he was very pleasant for the first two or three weeks of the show. Um, there was a movie that came out with Robert De Niro called The Fan. And I think this was going to be the movie that was going to put Wesley in the, you know, he was going to be an A-list actor after this. Like he was, he had done a movie with Sean Connery or, or later was doing one. So he was working with some big co-stars. Mm-hmm. And I think that Wesley was on his way to becoming a, a legit, you know, A-level movie star. And because um, it was Tony Scott and Robert De Niro. So there was a lot of expectation that that would be a, a massive mainstream hit. And it flopped. It tanked uh, bad. It, yeah. it, 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 it tanked bad. And I think that it took the wind out of Wesley's sails, quite honestly. I think it was crushing for him. And then after that, on set, I found that his mood changes changed and he was a little bit morose and he was a little bit cranky. And um, I did find a way to communicate with him that was acceptable to him and acceptable to me. Um, but he's not easy, but he's just insanely talented. And it's the other, it's just like with Steven. If you, if you think, well, this guy's a jerk and I can't work with him. If you miss their good ideas, then that's on you. You know what I mean? Right. He didn't become Wesley Snipes for no reason. Yeah. Right. Yeah. His, his his instincts about dialogue, about how to play a scene, especially about action. He's a great action actor. I mean, there's fights, even in a little thriller like Murder at Sixteen Hundred. There's some great fights in it, and um, he's so you have to not let your ego get in the way of a good idea. Yeah. Find um, that inroad with the guy to just sort of, re- all right, let's relate on, on this level then, you know, kind of let's like- get the best Wesley Snipes that we right. can get, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of talent here and yeah. don't take it too, you know, and don't take it too personally during the hard times. But Sidney Pollack said it best. He said, uh, he said, stars are like thoroughbreds. Um, they're finicky, difficult, and easily injured. But when they, but when they run, it's a thing of beauty. Right. You, you got to get your thoroughbred out on the track and you got to get it to run. And then all you have to do, then all you have to do is film it. Well, then I think, you know, you take a movie like Rapid Fire, which you did with the, the late Brandon Lee, um, which was an action film I saw when it came out, and I really liked. I thought I thought Brandon Lee was going to go on to become a huge action star. He would have, he would have, without a doubt. Yeah. He was wonderful in that film, and it's. I really, th- I mean, I'm not a big action movie guy, but I, I, I think Rapid Fire is great. Um, he followed yeah, it Brandon, up too. Well, and it's it. You know, I saw it again recently, and it's like it. The style of action movies has changed. Action movies have gotten so sophisticated. And rapid fire still works. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of a lot of action movies from that time don't, but that one does. Um, you know, did, did was was Brandon someone that you worked with that where you were like, you know, uh, he was. What, did he bring a lot of that himself, and you kind of just had to figure out how to where to put the camera and or well, you're like, how did that kind of work? Well, he was an expert at the martial arts. He'd been doing it since he was a kid. He had um, some great people around him who helped with the fight choreography. But I really had to make Brandon an actor. Not that he didn't have raw talent, but it was untrained. And it was, it was not, 
uh, was not ready for the big time. He had done one yeah. little thing called Little Showdown in Tokyo, I think, or yeah. something like that. But um, but by L by casting around him with Powers Booth and Kate Hodge and putting Tai Ma, I mean, we had a cast around him. Oh, Powers and, Booth alone is like, you know, what a commanding actor, right? He's just gold. And he would lift Brandon up. And Brandon is so, or was, so likable that yeah. that he didn't come in with that. I'm Bruce Lee's son, and this is my film. And there was none of that. He was just very likable. So all the actors wanted to help him. Yeah. Um, good. I mean, you know, Nick Mancuso, experienced yeah. actor, and they all helped him. I mean, they didn't try and, you know, take over my job, but they were making him better in the scenes. Yeah. And he was he was a sponge. He was taking it all in, and I think he ended up giving a very um, very solid performance. And there's no way he wouldn't have gone on. I think he would have been in every Marvel movie ever made. Yeah, he was amazing. I mean, he had it all, right? I mean, he was very handsome guy, uh, charming, likable. He kick ass in the in the fight sequences. I mean, everything. And he's a, was there. And he's a legacy guy. He's son of the yeah. one most. One of the most famous people in the world. Yeah. Right. I mean, Bruce, Bruce Lee, Lee. <laughs> you go into the smallest apartment in the Ukraine and the people know who Bruce Lee is. Yeah. Yeah. He's like Elvis of martial arts. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> he's he's yeah. just on some other level. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit before we wrap up here about Millennium because uh, I adore the show and I think it's probably one of the most underrated TV shows of all time. Um, and you did three of my favorite episodes of Millennium. Uh, you know, Millennium, I, Chris Carter, of course, writing on the success of X-Files makes this, you know, sort of spinoff, but it's a different animal altogether. And, you know, when you when you got involved with Millennium, did you were did you kind of, you know, go back and watch stuff they'd done sooner or did you get attached before the first season had started? No, no, they called me. Mine was either my first one was either late in the first season or the beginning of the second. It was called Bar. Uh, no. Was it called Borrowed Time? No, it was the other. Midnight. Midnight uh, of Midnight. the Century. Midnight of the Century was your That's season one. I'm not sure. But I, I knew. It was two. I want to say it was two. Yeah, That's the I, Darren McGavin episode, right? Yeah. And I think they'd already done a season one. I knew the writers, um, Jim Wong and Glenn Morgan. I knew the writers yeah. from, from my feature days. So, okay. so they, they reached out to me um, and they were up there working with Chris or under Chris or however you want to say it. Um, and I'd never done television. I said to them, guys, I don't know if I know how to do that. I don't have any, I don't know how to do television. And they said, oh, just come on up, Dwight. You'll be fine. We'll, we'll help you through it. And um, so I did go up and. Uh, working with Lance Hendrickson was just such a, I mean, he was fantastic as oh, a person. Amazing. And, and, and as that, as, I mean, as Frank Black, he was unbelievable. Um, and they gave me a lot of latitude as a director. They were really encouraging the directors up there. So uh, it was that first one, Midnight of the Century. By the way, that's a favorite. People love that episode. I, I think it's a brilliant episode. It's they, so good. Darren McGavin, they, fuck off. Come on. He's I mean, who doesn't love Darren McGavin? Everybody loves him. 
and I love and I loved him. So um, we that was a great experience, and I and I'm I feel like I'm not answering your question. <laughs> well, I was just I'm curious, you know, like because when I watched the episodes you did, it feels like one you really got the show because when a director comes on a series. You know, one of the things, and I, you know, I know a little bit about this as a filmmaker is like sometimes if a director comes on a show and they don't, you know, like you said in TV, there's a showrunner, the writers, the I mean, the writers are almost in charge on television. Really. That's right. That's right. Um, but you get a director on who doesn't get that or doesn't get the the, the material, and you can still have, you know, those tend to be the lesser episodes. Um, and it just seemed to me like you immersed yourself in the millennium is a dark show. And it was, you know, it's a pretty serious show. Lance, you know, and I know Lance, so I've, he and I are friendly. We, we, we almost made a film together and I've talked to him a lot about making millennium. And, you know, I know that was a, a tough show on him because he would take himself to a pretty dark place to play Frank Black. Right. Um, right. Uh, but, but when you watch Lance, you know, in your three episodes, I think it's some of his best work on the show. So I was just curious, like, for you, what your experience was directing Lance, like he, he's such a great actor and he, you know, Golden Globe nomination every season of the show he did, like, were you just pumped to, 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 to play well, with him on that series? First of all, yeah, I was a fan, but also I've learned to just ask, you know, instead yeah. of, instead of finding, I say, look, Lance, I like to meddle. I like to give notes. I like to roll up my sleeve and talk about it, but this is your show. You're the star. You've been playing F Frank Black for 22 episodes. You have to acknowledge, right? Yeah. That 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 you are Frank Black. So if you want to just be Frank Black and be left alone, I can do that. I'll yeah. work the scenes. I'll make it visual. I'll work with the other actors. But if you're okay... I'd love to get in the mud with you, right? And most yes. actors, not all, like Don Johnson fought me on this for a long time because um, I think he's had a lot of bad directors, but he, I finally broke him down. But, but, uh, <laughs> but, but most actors like Lancer, like, yeah, man, just bring it. Yeah, man. Yeah. Like, let's, let's, let's get down in the mud because it's a long day for them too, and it's more interesting, right? If you're yeah. if you're wrestling about the problem, then is then if you're just saying, okay, you know, we still let's move on from the master, and now we're gonna, you know, yeah. So, but I have made I have burned bridges and made mistakes because some actors are like, who is this guy who walks in in season three? And thinks he can just tell me how to play yeah. this character. Right. Take a hike. Yeah. This is my show, not yours kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah. I had that a little bit with Maggie Q, but then she and I became real, you know, colleagues. And, and, uh, but you, you have to respect that they're the lead. It's their show. You yeah. are the guest. In a yeah. movie, it's, in a movie, it's different. Yeah. Um, but yeah. it's their show. But if they're okay well, with it's it, different too, right? Do I like on a on a show like Millennium where you've got Lance Henriksen, Terry O'Quinn, another season pro, uh, so you know, good. Darren McGavin? You know these these are not like young up and, up and comers that have any no. like these are these are come on these are old school pros. So you know they probably didn't want to fuck around either. They just wanted to make something good and 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 
get the job done and go home. You know, I'm, I'm guessing. Yeah, but I think more than that with the old pros, you'd think they'd be like, kid, I got this. You don't need, I've been doing this for 30 right. years. I've been doing this for 30 years, kid. Did you just, I, I got you. I'll do it. You know, you could be like that. Or it could be like, no, no, let's, let's, and I don't want to name names, but I could give you the list of five actors that you know, stars, who have been not really that open to it. It's mm -hmm. like, you know, just, you just direct and I'll take care of the rest of this. Yeah. And if that's the their going to go away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And if that's their opinion and it's their show, then I can do that. It's not fun, but I can do it. I don't think it's good for the show. Um, you know, all these guys, like I had that problem with Dylan on the practice, Dylan McDermott on the practice. You know, we, we sort of struggled a little bit at the beginning. I ended up doing 10 of those. But later when he realized I wasn't throwing my weight around, I wasn't trying to tell him his business, right? I was just trying to, find what's best in the scene and once he once he was his ego wasn't threatened then he was he's a really good actor oh he's so, great yeah you know so the, a lot of these guys they can take notes and and once you know once they're emily de chanel and bones is, is a perfect one so is david like that they if you it's like playing an instrument if you give them a sp specific note if they want to, they could do it exactly the way you asked it. It's unbelievable, the good ones. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, with Millennium and, and you know, what I've always kind of been like, oh, my God, was the stupidity of Fox canceling that show in 1999, right? before? And they, had re and they had ratings, too. That's what's so shocking. It made no sense to anybody. It was like, you have a show called Millennium and you cancel it in 1999. Um, <laughs> we, had the, we had more ratings then than the biggest hit has on TV now. It was like 7 million people on a Friday night. Were, were you like, were you, you know, disappointed when you heard the show? Was Very, picked up? I loved yeah. going up there and doing that show. I liked the people. I liked the cast. I liked being in Vancouver. Yeah. I liked the, I, I liked the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, it was, I, it was it was such a, and it's a show that has carried on to have such a legacy. I mean, people who love Millennium, and there's a lot of people who do really love Millennium. And it, I think it's a show that was so ahead of its time because it's so mature. It's not like these pretty people, you know, with, with perfect bodies and tight fitting clothes, like like cop stuff afterwards became like the criminal mind shit and stuff like that. These were real looking people playing, you know, detectives and forensic investigators like middle-aged or and, and not like 25 year old models like it was just i don't know when that started when all the cops became models it's really a shame because you see them standing around the monitor first of all it all looks like the evening news because it's like the rainbow coalition <laughs> like there's an asian guy a black guy a white guy a brown guy they're, all they're, pretty. they're, they're yeah. and they're all model pretty yeah right and and so they you know, you think about Jodie Foster in the opening of Silence of the Lambs. You, it, it, she's tiny, right? She's a very petite yeah. person. But you think, Jesus, she could be an FBI agent. You know, just the way they had her going through Quantico and doing the yeah. training. And there's something about her presence where you think, yeah, I, 
she could be a cop. And then you look at these models, men or women, right? And you're like, <laughs> there's not one world in which that's a cop. No, it's ridiculous. It's and you know, and that's why you you watch Milan. I mean, I mean, Lance Henriksen, first of all, has such a great face, right? I mean, putting a camera on Lance is he carries the weight of the world on his face. Oh man, it's, yeah, and it's and how much more interesting than that is that than you know just another model? Like it's just I don't understand why it went that way, but it did. And it, Millennium, it, I think, is one of the last shows that really didn't do that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's network television changed change course that's for sure yeah well the last film i'll mention we'll we'll talk about before i let you go here is an anacondas which i have a an affection for i think it's a great fun it's an adventure movie it's a horror movie it's but you know i didn't even realize this until i was kind of looking into it to talk to you that it that it didn't do well i didn't know it was a film that hadn't that that didn't really go because they made about 10 sequels after it well it, it did okay here it actually had quite a moment uh, internationally. So Sony ended up being happy with it from a finance point of view because it did so well overseas. But it was disappointing here. Um, we were meant to open at a late August weekend. And then all of a sudden, there was this movie that came, that was unexpectedly was released on that weekend. It was called Hero with uh, Jet Li. Yeah, Harvey Weinstein decided to drop it on that weekend, and he called his friend Quentin Tar Tarantino and asked Quentin to put his name on it as a presenter, as a marketing hook. And uh, I guess they had a, at that time, you know, a strong relationship um, off of, needless to say, off of Pulp Fiction or whatever. So, um, so Quentin agreed, and so the movie as it was released, said Quentin Tarantino presents Hero. So right. I think everybody believed that this was uh, a Quentin Tarantino Tino movie and it opened big and really took the wind out of our sails on the opening weekend. Um, I think without that, we would have had a much stronger opening. Uh, that being said, it was a bit of a commercial disappointment. Um, we did get some good reviews. They were all over the place. Um, yeah. but there were some good ones. Um, LA Times and Variety and some of the local ones were pretty good. We got eviscerated by some people. But, you know, it's a sequel to a snake movie. You're not expecting... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, not, yeah. I'm not expecting Pauline Kale or whoever it is to... to Roger Ebert, to, those yeah, guys. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, it's, you know, I, I watched it again just yesterday. Um, and, you know, one of the things I was thinking I was watching is like, first of all, you know, shy of putting a, a little kid in that movie, you gave yourself every ni nightmarish thing a director can do with water, stunts, monkeys, like just Perfects. every, <laughs> yeah, like, you know, was it a, was it a difficult shoot? It was very difficult. Number one, we were on location in Fiji. We didn't have much infrastructure. We had to bring everything from Australia. Um, we had a lot of set difficulties. And as you say, what you see is what you get. It's a complicated movie. There's water work. Um, it's, you know, it, it was a very difficult movie. My only beef about the movie is that I didn't have the time or the money to make the snakes better. I think right. the acting is not bad. I think the story's perfectly serviceable. 
I think the ensemble of actors we put together, they were kind of fun, honestly, you know. Yeah, whole, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. The whole group and I kind of, you know, what, you know, what it's something you did in it that I thought was really cool and is really different is Johnny Mesner's character in it is kind of like the way that most of movies of that genre usually use their leading lady. He's kind of this hunky, sexualized right. person in it. You know, he's got that shirtless scene with the rippling muscles and like, that's usually a woman. And so to kind of subvert that, that kind of, you know, sexualization of, of a hero character, I thought that was different and, and kind yeah. of, you know, for an audience, maybe a bit refreshing. Well, he's, he, he's the love interest, but that was that movie. He was not, he was another actor was already cast in that role. And um, the actor had some personal problems who was in England. I won't mention names, but it was in England and wasn't able to come down at the last minute. Um, and Johnny filled in a very last minute. And I, th I thought in the end, he kind of had a quiet gravitas um, that he brought to it. But the the ladies were great. Morris, uh, Matthew Morris. I mean, there's a there's a fun ensemble on that yeah, boat. Totally. And, and, totally. and Kong, Kong the monkey stole the whole Steals movie. The movie. <laughs> he's just, I mean, he's sensational. It's a capuchin, right? The the type of monkey is that what it's called? Well, he's actually the angel, which is the baseball team out here. He's the rally monkey, um, and I forget I forget what he is in in. I think it's a I think that kind of monkey is called a capuchin monkey because I know George Romero was a friend of mine, and George talked to me about shooting with them for monkey shines, and I think it's the same kind of monkey. Oh, it but, could be. It could easily be. Um, yeah, but, is he still alive? Was, do you know that that the the the, act, the the monkey actor? I I just don't know. I wouldn't be able to know. I doubt it. This was twenty years ago now. But yeah, um, <laughs> I don't know how long we. I remember I was watching. I was watching the movie and there's that part near the beginning where you make us think that he, the monkey got eaten by the snake. Right. And I right. was like, I was like, no, Dwight, don't kill the monkey. No one will forgive you for this. Yeah, like, don't kill the monkey. Yeah. And then he dropped and then he drops back at the end. Yeah. Um, right. there's, there's a sequence that I think it's a, not a, it's not a snake sequence, but there's an adventure movie sequence in that movie that I, I'll hold up to anybody. It's when, this big cranky uh, creaky old boat goes over the waterfall yeah it's awesome that's it's a great spectacular scene. and you know what's cool watching the movie again now the effects and everything i don't know if you did it with miniatures or how you did it but it holds up brilliantly it doesn't look like an aged sequence at all except except for the snake it's like yeah. I, the snake just isn't where it needed to be and they ended up with a, a group in, in Australia and they really tried hard, but it was early days. The, the computer programs weren't as sophisticated as they are now. I yeah. mean, this is much older technology, but I think if we'd had another six months and another million dollars is what it would have taken to just refine each snake shot. You know what I mean? Like really... Yeah. Oh, like the shit. shot at the end of Free Willy 2 where the whale jumps over the net. They did that a hundred times, adding a little more water, a little more glint, a little more. Just, it was on screen for like three seconds. And it took months to do that one shot in those days. I mean, today you could do all that. That's much. nothing. Yeah. 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 That's nothing now. But this is all a much newer technology. Um, so. I still like the movie. I do. 
if the snakes were, you know, 20% better, I think it would have helped the movie. It's still, it's still fun. I mean, it's, you know, what's funny on IMDb. If you look, I don't know if you've seen this, but if you look, it says that the film's underperformance was so harmful to Dwight, Dwight Little's career that he was relegated to television. And I was like, Oh my God. Is that's on IMDb? Yes. No. The, the, the punchline to that is I was already in television. Which is, yeah, doesn't even and, make sense. And, and of course, it, of course, then there was still this stigma of, oh, it's television. Of course, now people oh, only man. want to be in television. Like everybody's, yeah. everybody's scrambling to get into television. But that's funny only because it's a little, it's kind of snarky for that guy to say that. But, but more amusingly, I had already been doing Millennium. Um, and I think I'd been doing the practice by then. So I was already in television when I did it. Although, I, to be fair, it was a disappointment uh, commercially. And um, I think I think if you give it a chance, it's a, pretty, it's a pretty entertaining, you know, Friday night with nothing else to do movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, double it up with Blood Diamond and you got yourself a perfect double bill there. That's a hell of a night, <laughs> Yeah, you've got a monkey movie and a and a little baby elephant movie, and you're off to the races. Um, was there any was because you didn't do a lot of features between Anacondas, and then until fairly recently, there there is a pretty big gap there where you didn't do a feature. Was that just because nothing? Well, you know, the one that really, that... the one that was a, a, a disaster for me personally was not Anacondas. It was one called Tekken, and okay, that the action flick. Yeah. We'll, we'll yeah. have to spend a whole hour um the story behind that movie um but that really was a problem and so in order to recover from tekken i went out and made a movie i'm extremely proud of called last rampage um with robert patrick with, with robert patrick that yeah. movie is is just that movie you know, feels very personal to to me for you was it was there something it was very about that? Yeah, the very, the, that story, that whole father son thing, it was very personal. It's very much of an indie. It's an indie. It, it, the, the the Chris Browning, the performances are great. It, it's just look, we had no money and no time, but as a standalone movie, it it just it breaks my heart. Still, Bruce Davison breaks my heart. Um, I don't know if you've had a chance to see that one, but if if you yeah, get I think it, it's wonderful. I, yeah, I think it's it, great. Yeah. There's something about that movie that just worked and i will say i just finished one called natty knox and um uh we'll see uh, hopefully that'll come out in september it is a throwback that's, that's kind of your return to the horror genre right it is a, throw, a total throwback and um it is a babysitter movie it's a small town movie um and so we'll see whether there's still an audience after all these years for that i think there is it's not it's not a blood fest, but we have a young actress in this movie named Charlotte Fountain Hardeen, and she's going to be a star. I mean, she's just something else. So I have, you know, I have hopes for it, um, but we got to get and, it out. And it also brings you back to working with a few of your uh, previous collaborators. Danielle Harris is in it. Robert England's in it. Uh, 
Misha um, Siegel, Misha Siegel did the score. Yeah. Um, it's been a, you know, it's been a real gift to be able to be with, just to be with Danielle and spend all that time with her. And she's a, such a grown woman now. Does she have like a bit in it or is it a, a major role she plays? No, no, she's got a, a, a substantial supporting role. She's Good. the mother. And so, so little Jamie Carruthers is the mom now. Isn't that funny? Yeah. And every time I would be with with Danielle, I was like, Danielle, I just, I'm sorry. I cannot accept you as an adult. You're still, <laughs> you're still my little Jamie, no matter what you, yeah. you know. Yeah, I feel very. I, I think it's possessed. so exciting for the fans of Dwight who love, you know, her, Danielle's work and your work and Halloween 4. They're going to be pumped to see you guys work together on this thing. I, I think that it's a really enjoyable thriller. And we have some other young kids that we found. And uh, I had Bill not Mosley's worked in there as well. Right? I hadn't worked with him before, but yeah. he, he does a very, very fine job is this um, kind of psychotic killer. And uh, Robert's not a bad guy. He's uh, Robert is kind of the John Houseman, Hal Holbrook part. You know, he's okay. a little bit, He's much more of the he knows the secrets kind of yeah. guy. Kind of set the tone for the story. Yeah, and and he, but he does have a relationship with the killer. We find out. Um, so it's it's not just a one and done cameo. It's a little more than that. Is there um, like a one liner you can give us on the plot? Like I know you can't do um, much. But. Yeah. So so a seven year old boy is the son of a fallen B-movie actress who now runs a brothel in a small town because her career is over. And this is all in the prologue. And she is taken out by the, the town elders and basically killed for being the, the town whore. And he's a witness to it, the seven-year-old boy. And he grows up to be a cop and comes back to the town and he is obsessed with his mother's old B-movies. So in his basement, he watches these grindhouse movies that his mother was very successful at. Um, and we actually had, we kind of had fun because we had to go out and shoot scenes from these little grindhouse movies. So the, he psychologically... Um, traumatized by who his mother was and the fact that she was killed in front of his eyes. So he confuses movies and reality. And he's, he's very lost in his own psychosis. This is kind of a long pitch. But anyway, he, he ends up going out into the world to try, try and recreate some of his mother's movies. Um, cool. So that's kind of where it's at. That sounds great. That's and that's coming out in. I'm hoping September. September. Okay. So that's still a ways out. Jeez. Well, we can't be. We can't go sooner because we do want it to fit the autumn Halloween season. Right. It is. It takes place on Halloween. There's a. Oh, okay. There's, there's a haunted house sequence in it. Um, so there yeah, is it'd be like releasing a Christmas movie in the summer. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a Hallmark Christmas movie in July. <laughs> yeah. Right. Which Hallmark does. Cause they're infatigable. They won't stop making those freaking things. Um, I, I've never seen anything like it. It's unbelievable. <laughs> 
Well, your book is called Still Rolling Inside the Hollywood Dream Factory. That's coming out in May for McFarlane. Then we've got Natty Knox to look forward to in the fall. Um, right. Anything else coming up, or is that where what's on the what in the forefront at the moment? That's what I've got at the moment. And when the when the date of the book and the movie are secured, I'll shoot you an email, and maybe you can you can uh, pump it up with your fans a little bit. Hundred percent. I mean, I can't wait to see the movie, and I know the audience of this show is going to love the movie and the book. So they're going mean, just- to the book. You're they're going to love the book because. Anybody's thinking about being a filmmaker or has been a filmmaker, the book, you know, not to oversell too much, but people are going to love this book. If they're interested in this world, they're going to love it. I'm pretty sure anyone that's listening to you and I talk about making yeah. movies for two hours is into filmmaking. And there's a lot, and there is a lot of dirt in it. So that's good too. <laughs> well, Dwight, this has been so great for me personally because I I love your work and I think you're you're just a really wonderful filmmaker and and a lovely guy and and I can't thank you enough for coming and chatting with me. Well, thank you for over over watching Halloween four. That's way too many times. I will continue <laughs> to do so. Once uh, we know when Natty Knox is coming on stuff, uh, maybe uh, we'll bring you back on for a little segment to talk a little bit more about that movie at that point. Well, good luck with all of your stuff and um, and this and the podcast and your films and everything. And we'll I'll check back with you when I have some dates. Be fun to do that. So thank you so much, Dwight. You've been listening to Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts with host and filmmaker Kevin Lane. Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts was created by Kevin Lane, produced by Jason Hill, and edited by Justin Beam. The Spill Your Guts theme and incidental music was created by composer Mike Haddon. Original artwork and design elements generously provided by Matthew Terrian. Spill Your Guts is only made possible by the support of listeners like you. And the most important thing that you can do to ensure that these amazing interviews keep coming is to simply get the word out. You can find us on Facebook by searching Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts, on Instagram by searching one word, Spill Your Guts underscore podcast, and Twitter at Spill Your Guts underscore one, as in the number one. So post, comment, share, like, but don't forget, There's still no substitute for good old-fashioned word of mouth. The best way you can support what we do is to just tell people about us. Your friends, your family, your co-workers, whomever. Anyone with a pair of ears and a taste for guts. This has been Kevin Lane's Spill Your Guts. Thanks for listening.